Well, good morning. How we doing? Happy 7th of July. Glad you guys are with us on this holiday weekend. It is fun for me to get to be back up here with you. Thank you for bringing your good-looking faces, by the way. Appreciate that. Um, in case you're new, we're in the middle of a brand new, well, actually, it's a summer series is what it is. And over the summer months, week by week, whoever is on the platform is sharing an unforgettable message that got through to them at some point in their journey. So today, I'm going to do nothing short of that. I'm going to share a simple but profound truth that has become unforgettable to me. And in the course of my time with you, I'm hoping to deliver it to you in a way that you feel like you can apply it. It is biblical, but I'm hoping I can summarize it in such a way that it just makes sense wherever you are in your journey with God. Let me begin with a question. Um, how many of you in this room today are parents or grandparents? Let's see your hands. Parents or grandparents? Okay, good. Good. The vast majority of you. If you're not, this can be a hypothetical question, but I want to ask you a question if you're a parent. How far would you go to help your kids in school? Or if you're a teacher, how far would you go to help your kids get good scores on their, on their tests? I believe we're living in a generation where this generation of adults has, has taken this the answer to this question to a whole new level. Would you agree with me? I don't know if you're reading what I'm reading and seeing what I'm seeing, but I spent a good deal of my time in public schools and state universities, and um, last month I read a story that was almost unbelievable. Uh, This wasn't limited to America. It took place in Paris, France, but evidently a mother decided she was going to help her daughter get a good grade on a major standardized test. And she didn't just help her, she cheated for her. And she didn't just cheat for her, she actually took the exam for her daughter. I'm not kidding. She put on her skinny jeans, low-waisted skinny jeans, kind of looked like a teen, wore her Converse shoes, and as the report said, lots of makeup, okay? And she sauntered into this large room where several hundred students were there to take this state test, and she would have pulled it off, except that one of the girls teachers was in the room that knew the girl and recognized the mother, called the police. This woman, Carolyn, was escorted out. She now faces an $11,800 fine, three years in prison for doing this. And her poor 19-year-old daughter will now not be able to take standardized tests in France for five more years. Now, you and I both know that mother meant well. She made a decision in the moment that seemed to make sense. My daughter's a little stressed out. OMG, hashtag hard. So she thought, I'm just going to take the test for her. I'll just slip in with my skinny jeans on and I'll look like her and I'll just pull it off. But you and I would agree, wouldn't you? That maybe in the moment that made sense, but that was not a great decision to make long term. I wish I could tell you this was an isolated case, but unfortunately stories like this happen hundreds of thousands of times, if not millions of times in our day. I got an email not long ago from a faculty member at the University of Syracuse in New York. She said, Tim, I just handed back my first set of tests to my first year students, freshman kids. She said, one of the girls in my class got a C minus on her test. Well, she had never gotten a C minus in her life before. So she had a meltdown right there in class. Oh, meltdown right there in class. We're all looking at this poor girl as she's having her meltdown. You know, everything kind of stops. First thing the girl thinks to do is to reach into her backpack and pull out her cell phone. She's going to text mama. By the way, the average college student is in touch with mom or dad 11 times a day. Did you know that? 
So she texts mama, mama, I just got a C minus on the test. Mom texts back and says, call me right, right away. So right there in class, she calls her mom. You know, class really can't go on because cell phone calls are kind of loud. So everybody's listening in as she talks to mama. But if that's not bad enough, she goes, okay, mom, she wants to talk to you. <laughs> Hands the phone to the faculty member. So mama can negotiate a B minus out of that C minus. Again, wish I could tell this was an isolated incident. I got a phone call from a friend of mine who's a president at a university. He said a mother called him this last semester, said, I've been watching the Weather Channel. I noticed it was really cold up there. Can you make sure my son has a sweater on this week? I'm sure he said, sure, I've got nothing else going on. I'll march over to the dorm right now and make sure he's got a sweater on. In fact, I'll put it on for him. I was just talking to an admissions counselor at Harvard University, an Ivy League school. And he said, Tim, I was... I was interviewing a prospective student for Harvard, and he said, I was really impressed with this kid. He said, I could tell mom and dad had really trained him on how to interview, because even though he was kind of shy and kept looking down, when he answered my questions, he gave me great eye contact. He looked me right in the eye. He said, it wasn't until after the interview was over, I realized he wasn't shy at all. He was looking down because he was looking at his cell phone. His mother was texting him the answers to the questions in real time. I'm not kidding. So, you know, you know how kids can text without looking at it, and then they look down there, okay, there's the teleprompter down there on my lap, and now I'm going to answer my interviewer. Needless to say, he did not get admitted into Harvard University. Now, what do these stories have in common? I'm going to suggest today they have in common the trap of the here and now. Meaning, every one of those parents in the here and now thought, you know what? Helping in this way is going to relieve the stress. It's going to solve the problem. It's going to smooth things over today. And would you agree, at least for the moment, it probably did help. But would you not? Don't you agree the reason we giggled at those stories is because we were thinking, holy smokes, down the road, that little girl isn't being helped. That boy isn't going to be able to interview on his own. By the way, do you know what I'm hearing now? Many 20-somethings are going for job interviews. Mother is joining Junior in the job interview. Did you know this? Now, I'm not mad at the kids. I love the kids. I'm saying, what have we done? I'll tell you what we've done. I don't want to oversimplify, but here's what we've done. We've become a generation of adults that have made decisions for the here and now, not the there and then. For the, in the short term, I'm just going to text the answer. I'm going to take the test for her. I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going to alleviate the stress. But in the long term, we have diminished the life skills of our children. Am I preaching to the choir? Some of you will know this. You remember this. About 20 years ago, the playgrounds of America began to change. Do you remember hearing about this? Monkey bars and jungle gyms were yanked off the playgrounds of schools and public parks across America. By the way, do you remember, anybody remember monkey bars or jungle gyms? Remember those? You old fogies, you. Yeah, I do too. We'd climb on those suckers, you know, 15 foot high and do something stupid up top of them or whatever. Well, about 20 years ago, we thought, oh, OMG, these are unsafe. So we started taking them off the playgrounds because we didn't want our kids to fall and skin their knee or break their arm. And by the way, in the moment, that made sense. Of course, we don't want our kids to do anything unsafe. But we became so safety preoccupied, safety belts, safety seats, safety this. We put helmets on them at dinner time. I'm, well, maybe not that bad, but do you feel this way sometimes? 
Now, in the moment, it makes sense. Junior is safe with a helmet and a belt and pads and knee pads, everything. But do you know what we're finding now? Those kids who 20 years ago were seven or eight or nine years old are now 27, 28, or 29 years old. They're going to psychologists, and psychologists are reporting. You can read this online. They're reporting that these young adults are having phobias about normal risk-taking ventures because they never learned to mitigate risk at eight or nine, and now they're unable to do it at 28 or 29. Normal risk-taking things like interviewing for a tough job or even getting married or moving out of the home. Moving out of the home. (laughs) Shall I give an altar call right now? Three years ago, Monster.com reported that 60% of the college students in America were moving back home with everyone in college. So is the majority. Do you know what the latest number is? The Baltimore Sun just released the latest number. Last year's senior class, 80% of the college students were moving back home with everyone in college. Now, all I'm simply saying is it's not the end of the world. And by the way, I love these kids. I'm simply saying let's push pause and let's double click on why is this happening. Why? Is it just a bad economy? It's a tough economy. It's not that tough. I graduated 30 years ago. It was a tough economy with interest rates and gas prices. It wasn't very fun 30 years ago either. Am I right about this? I'm simply saying, thank you. I'm simply saying, I think we've made decisions differently these days. We're making decisions for the here and now. And herein lies the truth, the simple nugget I want to communicate to you today. And I'm going to, I'm going to ripple this talk with these statements that I want you to catch and I want you to walk out of here today with maybe a light bulb going on helping you make better decisions in your life. Somewhere along the way I made the discovery and here it is. The further out I can see the better the decision I make today. Can I say that again? The further out I can see into the future the better the decision I make today. When I look back on my life and I look at the decisions I regret, whether it was people or jobs or money or whatever, purchases, buyer's remorse, when I look back on the decisions I regret, you know what they always goes back to? I made a decision for the here and now. It really felt good then. Look, I got goosebumps. It really felt good right then. Long-term ramifications, not so much. Would you agree with this? Now, I probably sound like your grandpa right now. Sorry. But I want to just look today at pictures of what I'm talking about and illustrations and a biblical case study of why this is happening the way it is. And by the way, maybe you would argue, well, Tim, I just think parents are more caring today than we ever were. Maybe we are. But even if we're caring, I'm asking, if we really care, wouldn't we do the right thing by our kids for the future? By the way, I just was doing a... uh, doing a lecture at a major university. I was talking to the faculty at this major university in the Midwest. It will remain nameless. But during the break time, one of the profs came up to me and said, Dr. Elmore, um, I, I get what you're saying about, about the students today and blah, 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 blah. But he said, haven't we always said this down through history? I mean, haven't we always said, ah, kids today, those lazy slackers, they feel entitled, blah, 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 blah. And then he said, and look at us. They said this about us. And look at us now. We turned out okay. Do you know what I said back to him? I was just as civil and courteous, but I said, really? Seriously? We turned out okay? I actually said, I agree with your first statement. Down through history, the adults have always thought the kids were lazy slackers. Socrates, did you know this? Said this about the kids of his day. But I said, I don't agree with the second statement. We turned out okay? 
We're now a generation of adults that cannot balance a federal budget. The marriages of America are in shambles, not all, but many. We have addictive behaviors like we've never seen before. We're emotionally unstable, going to see therapists, and we're physically unfit. Other than that, we're doing great. (laughs) Now, I don't want to be cruel, but (laughs) I, I don't know if you should laugh or cry, clap or not. All of us have fallen into this trap, have we not? To greater or lesser degrees, we've all fallen into the trap of making a decision that felt good in the moment, but later we go, hmm, I should have been thinking about this, you know, the ripple effect five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. I'm here to suggest this morning, the further out you can see, the better the decision you make today. Now, I want to look at a biblical case study of this. If you brought your Bibles, I want you to open them up way back to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And if you don't have your Bible, it's no, no big deal. We're going to put this up on the screen, and you can follow with me. But in Genesis 25, starting with verse 29, reading down to verse 34, we're going to read about a guy that many of you have heard of. If you've been in church at all over the course of your life, you've heard about Esau. Remember the name Esau? You probably know his more popular brother, Jacob. Remember Jake? Okay. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. In fact, let me give you the context of the story before I share the story. Esau and Jacob were twin brothers, but Jacob was the firstborn. He came out only seconds before Jacob did. And we know this because Jacob was literally clinging to the ankle of Esau as he came out of the womb. That was an omen of things to come. It was a picture of the sibling rivalry that happened all through their going up years. They were scratching and clawing and fighting. These two brothers, Jacob feeling like he didn't have the advantage of the older brother. And by the way, he didn't. Esau, as the firstborn son, was the automatic recipient of the birthright. Now, I know most of you are not Jewish in here, so let me explain that to you. The birthright was what every Jewish boy wanted, but it only went to the one who was the firstborn son. With it were all the inheritances, the rights of the firstborn son, meaning that as daddy got older, you became the patriarch of the family. As he could no longer be the big daddy, if you will, you became the head honcho with the livestock and all the riches that your family had accumulated. Esau got the birthright. It was an incredible, prestigious gift. On top of that, you stood in line, you stood to get the blessing. As you went through puberty and you went from boyhood to manhood, you would have, there would be a ceremony where your father would speak words of blessing over you. It was kind of a rite of passage from boyhood to manhood, as I just said, where father would put his hands on your shoulders and speak words of belief and affirmation. Can you imagine if fathers would do this today in America over their sons? Words of belief and value and, and, and faith for their future. And oh, it was just an incredible thing. Esau was going to get that. All these things Esau had in his favor. And on top of that, Esau was kind of a man's man. Esau was a daddy's boy. Jacob was a mama's boy. Okay, can you get the picture? Esau was a rugged outdoorsman, a hunter, very hairy. In fact, remember the story? He just had hair all over him. He's just a guy's guy. In fact, picture Duck Dynasty. Okay, Esau starred in his own version of Duck Dynasty. I'm making this up. This is not in the Bible. But Picture duck down. He's just outside with the animals and the ducks, and he's just having a good time. Okay, that was Esau. Okay, now I want you to capture the story. Now Genesis twenty-five, starting with verse twenty-nine. Let's read how one day in his life changed everything for his life. Verse twenty-nine. 
It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew. Now, there you go. Do you see what he's doing? If Esau is Duck Dynasty, J- Jacob is, is the food network, okay? He's, he's cooking a meal, okay? He's a mama's boy. He's cooking some stew. Esau came in from the open country, and he was famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. It goes on to say this is why he was called Edom. By the way, ever heard of the Edomites? Esau was the father of the tribe of the Edomites, okay? Now, watch what Jacob says. Jacob replies with what I would call a stunning deal. Stunning in that he's, he starts asking for something in a trade for the stew that no one in his right mind would take seriously. He says, Jacob replies, first, sell me your birthright. Now, can I push the pause button here and say this? Would you not agree he's offering a bowl of stew and Jacob's saying, in exchange for that stew, can I have your birthright? Nobody would say, oh, of course, absolutely. Where do I sign? You do not do that. Your birthright, your, for Pete's sake. That's be, it'd be like, I don't know, trading a car for a bowl of super. Even more than that. It was everything. Evidently, Jacob had been watching a pattern in his brother's life. A pattern of knee-jerk reactions, of quick decisions, choices that were the here and now. And and when Esau came in with a little need, I'm famished, I'm really hungry, oh my, jo- oh my gosh, Jacob thought, this is my chance. I'm gonna throw out, I'm gonna lob out this matzo ball, I'm just gonna lob it out there and see if he goes for it. So he says, in exchange for this too, sell me your birthright. Now Esau basically accepts. It's unbelievable. Look what he says. Next verse, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is that birthright to me? Now, by the way, do you see the hyperbole in this? He says, I'm about to die. Is that not like us? We go three hours between a meal. I'm starving. Do we not do this? It's hyperbole. We're not starving. We got four days of fat on our body to hold us over for the next several days. But he says, look, what is that birthright to me? I'm starving. I'm going to die. He's not going to die. He's from a well provided for family, Isaac. And by the way, his granddad, Abraham, was the richest man in the region. They had livestock, and he was not going to die. But that's just it. In the moment, the emotion clouds his rationale. Did you hear me? In the moment, our emotion clouds our logic and our rationale. And we start saying things exaggerated and hyperbolic, like, I'm going to die, I'm famished, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then he starts saying something that's ridiculous. What good is that birthright to me? Mm, Esau, you're not looking out very far. You're not looking out very far, buddy. That birthright is going to pay you well in the future. It's your retirement, buddy. It's, 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 you're the patriarch. You're the next patriarch. He only sees today. And if you look what happens next, it plays out. Verse 33, but Jacob said, swear to me first... In other words, pinky promise. And so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and he drank and then he got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright from that time on. Folks, I would like to share with you what I see happening in this text I want to share with you, if you're taking mental notes, six characteristics 
of Esau's short-sightedness, his failure to practice the truth, the further out I can see, the better the decision I make today. See if these make sense. And by the way, see if you can apply these to your own life today. Characteristic number one. He focused solely on the here and now, convinced that tomorrow is less important. He focused solely on the here and now, convinced that tomorrow was less important. By the way, can I just ask you a question to think about? Does that not sound like the messaging our culture and the media give to us today? Now. Do it now. Get the car now. Call now. Before midnight tonight. You deserve it. And so Esau's caught up in this horrendous lie that the birthright is less valuable than the stew. Why? Because the stew is here and now. And somehow in the emotion of the moment, listen, it just made sense. Think about decisions you've made that you regret now. If you could just go back in in time. I bet you, you would look back and say, the decisions I made just made sense at the time. Looking back, I see what's idiotic. But it made sense in the moment. Characteristic number two. The second one would be, he relied on his natural gifts and birth order rather than on God's plan. In other words, he had been so steeped in privilege. I was the firstborn son. Thank you very much. I've got this manly man thing going on. I've got, I've got everything going in my favor. And I think instead of relying on the plan of God and following and obeying God, he just decides, how can things, something go wrong? And by the way, as the firstborn son, he gives up or surrenders or relinquishes those things that were his had he walked in the plan of God. In fact, get this. Let me, let me give you a picture of what he gave up. Jacob becomes the recipient of the blessing and the birthright. He gets both of them. Jacob then joins the line of Christ. Get, get this. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. Ever heard of Israel? His 12 sons were the 12 tribes of Israel. His legacy goes on to this day. Esau, I had to explain a little bit before you knew who he was. I'm just saying. I'm not saying. Okay. Number three, his short-sightedness prompted him to surrender the ultimate in order to gain the immediate. Now, I want you to get this. His short-sightedness, his ability to only see here and now, prompted him to surrender the ultimate in order to gain the immediate. I have learned, and I learned this years ago. I've tried to practice it ever since I learned it. If I forget the ultimate, I'll become a slave to the immediate. I'm going to say that again. If I forget the ultimate, I'll become a slave to the immediate. And I don't mean to overspeak. I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this. But think about the decisions you've made in your past. Isn't it true? When we lose sight of the big picture, we make these wingnut, foul-tip, bonehead choices that we go, what was I thinking? That marriage, that car, that job, that, I mean, you name it. You fill in the blank. We've all done it. We've all done it. We got this here and now trap we've fallen into. Let's look at the next one. Number four. Favored by his father, he may have assumed that dad would bail him out of his poor decisions. Now, this is a guess on my part, but I'm thinking because of the track record of his knee-jerk reactions and everything's going to work out fine, I think Esau just assumed that some caring adult, probably father, would swoop in and bail me out. Does this sound strangely familiar, moms and dads? 
we have been notorious for swooping in. And by the way, maybe we think that's going to happen for us. Someone, my boss, my job, the government, someone will swoop in. And so we never really learn to make good decisions because someone's going to help us with our bad decisions. Now, I thank God for the grace that others give us. Thank God for churches like this. But I'm just saying, do we really want to walk in that excuse that someone's going to have to bail me out? Do we want to be Lois Lane all of our life? Needing Superman to fly in and save us? I don't think so. Number five. Perfect timing. I'm just talking about someone bailing you out, swooping in and bailing you out. Thank you very much, Superman. I'll be Lois Lane. Okay. Although I missed the red cape somewhere. I missed the red cape. Okay, anyway. All right, ready to pick it back up now? Everybody still with me? Okay. Number five. His limited vision caused him to marry a Hittite, a choice which grieved his parents. Now, back in this day, it was customary for Jewish people to marry Jewish people. Right or wrong, whatever you think about that, it was that you wanted to stay in the same faith, you wanted to stay with the same ethnicity. It just, in fact, God had even instructed them, keep this faith pure, keep moving forward, keep growing. I don't want you divided. I don't want you arguing over this. This is way too valuable. Faith in God is way too valuable. Well, Esau knows this. He knows better. But he sees this good-looking girl who's a Hittite, and he marries her. And if you read Genesis 26, the last two verses, it said it grieved his parents deeply. Once again, the stew wasn't the only bad decision he made. It was not the only short-sighted moment he had in his life. One more. Characteristic number six. His clouded vision blinded him from the deception of his brother, Jacob. Now listen. Jacob was a conniver. I mean, he was a deceiver. His name means supplanter. So Esau should have known, okay, if my brother's trying to wheel and deal with me, it's probably not a good deal. I mean, wouldn't you think he'd learn too? But his own short-sightedness blinded him from the truth and the logic of the moment, and he trades in his birthright for some stew. All I'm simply saying is this. If Esau were with us today, he would look at you straight in the eye and say, can I tell you what I learned? The further out I look, the better the decision I make today. And I am guilty of not looking out very far. Can I tie a ribbon around this for you? In case all this makes sense, but you need something that you can grab onto, something you can wrap your arms around, let me say it this way. One of the life lessons that has come from this central truth is this. I have noticed over my life that if I choose to play now, I usually have to pay later. Hello. If I choose to play now, nothing wrong with that, but if I say I'm playing now, I just need to know what I'm bargaining for is I'll have to pay a price later. Esau would agree with me. Hook, line, and sinker. He totally agrees. Now watch this. But if I make a decision to pay now, I wait on the pleasure. I put something off. I'm able to delay gratification. If I pay now, generally speaking, as a rule, I get to play later. Pay now, play later. Play now, pay later. In fact, can I put it in an even better statement? Um, somewhere along the way, I don't know when it was, I learned this truth and I have grabbed onto it and I've taught it to my children. I've tried to embody it myself in front of 
my children. But here it is in a nutshell. Watch this. If I'm in the middle of a, of a decision, if I've got a choice in front of me, a few options, I have noticed that if I choose the option that gives me short-term benefits, there's almost always long-term consequences. Say it again. If I make a decision for short-term benefits, it's going to benefit me right now. As a rule, it leads to long-term consequences. But if I make a a decision for short-term consequences, i got to pay a price right now. It almost always leads to long-term benefits. I'm enjoying life later. Now, I don't think there's anybody in this room that just say, Tim, you're lying to us. You're just lying to us. You, no, you, don't, you don't think that. I don't think. But would you not agree with me? We live in a culture that nudges us toward the here and now. Almost every commercial you watch says, buy it now. Almost every media push you get. Even you look around, you're, the, if you're keeping up with the Joneses, they've got the Winnebago. They've got the, something always looks better now. And we're thinking, why should I put it off? We're like Esau. What is the birthright good for me? What, what the heck good is it for me? I want this too. I am, I'm famished. I'm dying. And so we make decisions now. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's that many of us in this room had parents from an older generation that did do this well, maybe overly well, and we're now reacting. The pendulum has swung to the other side. You follow what I'm saying? I'll just use my life as an illustration. I learned many of these things I'm teaching you from a great set of parents. My mom and dad modeled this pay now, play later. Can I just give you their story? They were both born at the, at, at the front end of the Great Depression. That's a history lesson for most of us. You all remember the Great Depression? The Great Depression started in November of 1929. My dad was born in 1930. In fact, the first 10 years of his life were the Great Depression. The next five, World War II. So the first 15 years of his life were be careful, be cautious, save up, delay. Now, probably overly so. But can I describe my dad to you right now? He's 83 years old. He's grateful, right? You know these people. They're so grateful for every little thing. Some, in fact, sometimes we got to say, Dad, go ahead and buy it, that piece of gum. Go ahead and buy it. You know what I mean? He's conservative, very conservative, always saving. In fact, he, he used none of the social security, none of the government money. He had saved up so much money. He and mom were doing fine because of what he had done, saving up for it. Um, concert, thrifty, pinch pennies, save the wrapping paper Christmas, save the wrapping paper, we'll use it next year, right? Sometimes we iron the tissue paper, we may use it again. And we all, you're laughing. You know why you're laughing? You go, oh my gosh. Yeah, and so what we've done, we really respect that older generation, but I think sometimes we swing to the other side and it's now, 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 now. Isn't it maybe a balance that we need to strike, don't you think? Where there are moments right now, my kids are in front of me, I need to enjoy my kids. I don't need to be going off, I need to be right now in the moment fully present. But I need to balance that when a decision lies in front of me. I'm also looking at the long-term ramifications of this choice I'm about to make. I see the ripple effect. I see where it leads me. I will be unable later to do something because I didn't get ready now. I need to see that just as well. I wonder if the pendulum just keeps swinging back and forth in history. And maybe our kids' kids will do it better because they saw us botch it up on the other side. I don't know, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we as a generation, maybe just this slew of people in this room, could buy into the notion that the further out I see, better decision I'm going to make right now. 
Esau was described in the New Testament. I don't know if you know this, but his story took place in Genesis way, way later, centuries later. His story is brought up in the book of Hebrews, and you see the long-term effects of his decision that day. In fact, I'd like you to just read me with me on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12, there's several men of faith that are described in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, but here's what it says. The writer of Hebrews says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And see that no one is sexually immoral or godless. Look at that word. Like, and then who's he give as an illustration? Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Wow. All I'm simply saying is this. We now live in a culture of Esau's. I love our nation. I love the modern culture that we live in, high tech. I love it all. It's awesome. But we need to see that our culture actually pushes us the wrong direction. It pushes us more toward Esau than we'd like to care to, we'd care to admit. In fact, if you and I were to go have Starbucks and you said, Tim, I got five minutes. Can you summarize what we need to do in response to this? Here's what I would say. I would say you and I have grown up in a different scene than the people of yesteryear. And by the way, if you were writing notes on a napkin, I would write the word scene, S-C-E-N-E, and I would take those five letters and scene, I would say this aptly describes the culture that we live in today. And I would also describe the unintended consequences of that culture. For instance, follow with me real quick. The letter S in scene reminds me, you and I are now living in a generation of speed. Our culture is high speed. Would you agree with that? We love speed. We love ATMs. We don't want to wait for a banker. We love fast food. We don't want to wait for a waiter. We love everything. High-speed internet. My goodness gracious, I've said this before, we're pacing in front of the microwave oven these days. It's ridiculous. Come on, isn't that true? We don't have time. We don't want, what is, it's taking 60 seconds. What's wrong with this thing? Okay, now, watch this. If I grow up in a world of speed, the unintended consequence, I can start thinking that slow is bad. The letter C. The letter C in scene is convenience. You and I have living in a world of convenience. The kids today are growing up in a world of convenience. And do we not all love the conveniences of our high-tech modern world? But if I grew up in a world of convenience, I start thinking that hard is bad. It's too hard. It's too hard. I can't do it. It's too hard. Sound familiar? The letter E in scene, we live in a world of entertainment. Oh my gosh, do we not live in a world of entertainment? We're standing in line. There's one minute of nothing. We pull out a smartphone. What game can I play on this sucker here, you know? What, what, what email? What Instagram? What, you know, we're, there's always a, entertainment. Keep my mind occupied with external stimuli. I know that's hard to take notes on, but I'm right about that. Now, if I grew up in a world of entertainment, I can start thinking that boring is bad. Moms and dads this summer, have you heard this? I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. The letter N in scene reminds me. Many of our kids today have grown up in a world of nurture. Not all, but many. Remember the safety pads in the jungle gyms? So if I grow up in a world of nurture, I start thinking that risk is bad. We need to be safe. Don't take a risk. And then finally, the last letter E, not all, but many of growing up in a world of entitlement. I deserve this. And if I grow up in a world of entitlement, I start thinking that labor is bad. 
Now, I don't want to oversimplify, but did you just note all the unattended consequences I just listed? Slow and hard and boring and risk and labor. Aren't those the very things that build virtues in me? Do you hear that? Aren't those the very things that help me become a good man, a good husband, a good father, a good leader, a good worker? Hard and slow, I had to struggle for it, but it was worth it when I, when I got it. All those things that, that make me a good man, our culture has unwittingly, nobody, nobody tried to do this, nobody, it's not a conspiracy, but it's been pulled away. So we've got to be very intentional about building this into our lives and into our kids' lives because culture's not doing it. By the way, do you know why people were more patient 100 years ago? They spent their summers waiting for the crops to grow. Come on. You know why we have to go to the gym to work out? We're not toting bales of hay around. Anybody toting bales of hay these days? Am I right about this? We live in a culture we have to pay to go work out because we don't work out in our jobs. We sit at a computer and get chubby. We do. We really do. So I'm just saying, the reason what I'm saying is so simple but so profound is we live in a world that will not teach this. It will not teach this. We're going to have to tell ourselves every day that the further out I can see, the better the decision I'm going to make right now for my children, my spouse, my family, my savings, my retirement, my job, my walk with God. I've got to see the long-term effects. I need to live with eternity in mind. Now, I know I'm getting pretty passionate, and I don't mean to be rude or crude or anyone, but I want you to be thinking right now, is there a category of your life where maybe you've fallen prey to the trap of the here and now. And maybe you made a decision that you didn't consider the long-term impact of that decision. I tell you what, it's not just us as individuals. We as a nation stand at a threshold right now. I'm not a prophet of doom, but can I describe real quick the threshold of the trap we have fallen into as a nation? I'm about to make a statement about our country and our federal government. This is not a Democrat statement. It's not a Republican statement. It's a choice statement. But please listen and hear what I'm saying. I'm about to share a fact with you. We have borrowed so much money as a nation. We've borrowed so much money that if every worker in America gave all the money they made, every single penny, to the government in taxes, we could not pay off the debt in our entire life. Do you understand that? We're, we're really in trouble. And, and by the way, I believe in God. I believe he wins in the end. I'm just saying, we have been so here and now. I don't want to give that up. I don't want to give up that program. I want good roads. I want, of course we do. Of course we do. I'm just saying, do you know? Play now, pay later. That's how life works. And sooner or later, it catches up. It just catches up to you. And I'm thinking, let's just you and I. Forget everybody else if they don't want to do this. Let's just you and I say, doggone it, I'm going to live by this truth, that I'm going to look way out, not just here and now, and make these decisions the best decisions I can make them. So, how are you doing? How are you doing with your credit card statement, with your diet, with your, am I getting too meddling now? Um, with, With your with your need for stimuli from entertainment on the smartphone or the TV or the computer? How are you doing with all these things that seem to atrophy our life skills? Are you doing okay? Are you able to regulate? In fact, that's the key. 
regulation. The term I'm hearing in corporate America as well as state schools, state public, public schools and state universities is the term self-regulation. Are you able to practice self-regulation? That you regulate yourself. You can moderate. You can say no. You can wait. You want to hear a daddy statement? My two kids as they were growing up heard me say this a bazillion times. This is one of those quirky things they're going to, they're going to say at my funeral, I know. But here's what I said to them. Discipline yourself so somebody else doesn't have to. I love that. Discipline yourself so somebody else doesn't have to. And that helped. That diminished the need for discipline in my home because my kids knew what daddy was going to say. If I have to discipline you, that meant you didn't do a very good job yourself. But listen, when you do discipline yourself, you're very employable. True? You're very attractive as a future spouse. You're very appealing as a person. Okay, I've said enough. Let me end now with three quick statements that are action steps that I think would be great to take in light of this message, okay? Action step number one. Tell yourself the truth about now and later. Tell yourself the truth about now and later. What I mean is I want you to actually practice self-talk. I know that sounds quirky, but I do this. I talk to myself quite a bit. In fact, I told my wife, um, there's two reasons why I talk to myself. There really are. Reason number one, I like talking to intelligent people. I really do. <laughs> yep. And number two, I like hearing intelligent people talk. But anyway, um, I'm just kidding. Talk to yourself. In the middle of a decision, let's say you're at, at the department store or wherever you are, just get alone and whisper this to yourself. What's the ripple effect today? What, what do I get today? I get the sofa, I get this, whatever it is, I get this. But what is the ripple effect later? What's, what's this look like three years, five years, ten years from now? See now and see later. Look far out and look up close. Can I get, illustrate this? I walked out today with my glasses on. I need to put them back on. These glasses I got two years ago. Do you like them? Okay. Um, these glasses, thank you, thank you very much. Um, these glasses are called progressives. It's the new fashion bifocal. You know what bifocals are. Ben Franklin came up with bifocals. Bifocals allow you, if you look on the top half, to see far away and the bottom half you can read. These are progressives that mean it gradually goes up. If I look up through these glasses, it allows me to see distance. If I look down, it allows me to read and see something up close. Bingo. Keep your spiritual progressives on. When you look down right in front of you, do you see what this will do today? Do you see what this will do to you today? And when you look up and out, thank you, Lord, what's the long-term effect this will do to me in the future? Number two, value the process as much as the product. We live in a day that really values the product. We love results. We like production. We want to get to the bottom line. We even say that. What's the bottom line? We use it all the time. What's the bottom line? You know what we're really saying? Don't tell me about the birthing process. Show me the baby. Show me the baby. Show me the money, right? We love product. I'm saying, do you realize that in God's economy, the process sometimes is even more important than the product at the end? He wants fruit born, but he doesn't want artificial fruit. He doesn't want shortcuts. And so we value the process, the growth that takes place as we get to the product. It's so cool. In fact, can I illustrate this real quick? I have a friend named David. David and I are both dads. Six years ago, his son Nick was 12 years old. He's now 18. When Nick was 12 years old, a brand new iPod had just come out. And the Apple stores were full of these really cool new iPods. Well, Nick told his dad, Dad, I got to have this new iPod. It's awesome. Look at these features. And he described it like he was doing a commercial for it. He said, look, I got I to get this. 
Well, David said to me, quite frankly, he said, Tim, I was torn because I love my son. I had the money to get this. I could have argued it was a reward for something, but, but I knew there was something even more viable than just getting him the iPod, and then he's got it. So David, my friend, said, Nick, um, do you have the money for this iPod? He knew the answer. Uh-uh, uh-uh, I do not have the money. So David said, I'll tell you what, Nick, I'll make you a deal. This deal was way better than Jacob's deal. He said, Nick, I'm going to buy that iPod today to seal the fact that it will be in our home. No one else will get it. Which one, which one do you think we ought to get? But then he said, because I'm buying it, it's really mine. And what I'd like you to do is over the next several months, whatever you can give toward this, you can make payments. And as you make payments, when you finally pay it off, you can have it. It'll be yours. Well, Nick really quite shy, quite sure about that because he'd never heard of layaway. Never heard of that. Okay? But um, that was the layaway plan. Now, Nick eventually went for it because it was his way to get it. That was the only way he's going to get it. Can I tell you, the process was absolutely life-changing for Nick. I know Nick. He's a great freshman in college. Nick saw that iPod go into the bag and walk away with his father. And Nick, every month, $25, $10, $15, he cut grass. He'd make payments. And after about 12 months, that iPod was put in his hand. You never saw a kid more grateful, more appreciative. Do you know how this works? Aren't you grateful when you had to wait for something and you worked for it? And, and now he's still got that iPod. But I'm just saying, thank God for a dad like David who said, I value the process even more than the product. One more. The last one I would say is ask God's Holy Spirit to enable you to do what you cannot do yourself. Now, I know for some of you that sounded really cheesy and really syrupy and over-spiritual. But can I tell you something? My guess is many of you in the room today, as you heard me talk about all this, you thought, it makes sense. There is no way I can actually do what you just said. Wait for later and put it off. You don't know the addictive behaviors I've got right now. You don't know my credit card statement right now. You do not know the spouse I have married. You do not know the situation I'm in. And I'm saying, you're right, I don't. But when you say you can't do it, I agree. I said, I agree. Neither can I. That's why this third step is absolutely vital. This is what separates us as followers of God with the other people around the world. Listen to me. There are going to be times when you know there's a right decision to make, and you know you need to make the right decision. He doesn't expect you to have the strength to make the decision. It's his strength that enables you to pull it off. What he needs is your will. Good decisions are a combination of your will and his power. Your will, his power. Your will, his power. So men, can I talk to you? That tough decision you think or it's impossible to make. If you will just willfully say, God, I know this is right. I'm aligning with you. I'm going to do it. And you hit your knees and you say, God, I need you to help me pull this off. God, first of all, he sees humility so rarely that he loves it in us. And what he'll do is he'll come next to you and it may not be easy. He didn't promise it'd be easy, but he will give you what you need to pull off that decision. And by the way, that's how it works even coming to him in the first place. Some of you in this room would say, Tim, what you're describing makes sense. It's just that I don't even know if I've ever initially stepped over the line of faith. I don't know if I died today. I'd, I'd go to heaven. I don't know if I really belong to him. I believe in God, but I don't know him. If that's you, this is how this works. It's an ask. You start the relationship with God with an ask. Just like a wedding starts with I do, it starts with you saying I do to him. Where you invite him to come into your life to be your Savior and your Lord. And at that point, he is present to foster these right decisions 
that we have to make for our future. If that's you today, I want to pray for you. In fact, I'm going to pray for all of you first, but I'm going to pray a second prayer in just a minute. If today you're sitting there and you're thinking, I need to do that, I'm going to pray a simple prayer, phrase by phrase, and I'm going to pause in between the phrases. And if this expresses the desire of your heart, I'd love for you to, right where you're seated, to just ask him in. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I'm just asking now that you would put your finger on those categories or those portions of our life where we need to practice this truth we've talked about today. Help us to see further out. Help us to make great decisions today. Spirit of God, put your finger on those areas. Call it to our attention. Help us to be aware and then give us the strength, God, to be wise. In Jesus' name. Now, with your head still bowed, I'm going to pray that second prayer. And again, if you want to invite Christ to come into your life, follow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I do want to know you. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to the cross to die for my sin. Thank you for the forgiveness of all of my sin. Right now, I invite you to come into my life to be my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for the gift of everlasting life with you. Now, God, help me to make a great, to be a great decision maker to follow you the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you just prayed that prayer with me, that is the smartest decision you'll make the rest of your life. Would you guys agree with that? So, if you did, um, in your program, the program you got on the way in, there's a little flap on the inside. It's just a little uh, perforated flap that you can tear off. What I'd like you to do, if you will, is just fill out your contact information, and then at the bottom of that flap, there's a little box you'll notice that says, today, I prayed to receive Christ into my life for the first time. Check that box and tear it off. And then on your way out, if you'll just put it in one of the boxes right next to the doors, we'd love to just follow up, send you some things, help you get started in your relationship with God, which will be the greatest decision you'll ever make. I love you guys. Have a great week. God bless you. We'll see you next time.